0: morning, which is Matthew chapter 16. Again, just being sensitive to those of you who may have not be here for the first time or haven't been here in a while, we're going through this in 2017. This is the story. And the story is a 31 chapter condensed narrative of the whole Bible. And this is a way for us in 2017 to go through the whole story of the scriptures. So we've been utilizing this book, but also been reading the scriptures that go with it. And so we are on chapter uh, 25 and To be even more general, we're in Act 2 of the story, and that means the New Testament. And Act 2 is well underway. That's how we kicked off our fall. And even though it's well underway, things are starting very quickly. The tide is beginning to turn. If you remember, and it was only just a few weeks ago, that's how quickly we're moving through the story, Jesus, when he arrived on the scene for the first time, teaching and revealing the kingdom of God through signs and wonders, Jesus was a real crowd pleaser. I mean, news traveled quickly about his ability to do things that no one had ever seen before. His reputation as one speaking with authority preceded him wherever he went. There wasn't a mountainside or a village or even a home in all Galilee. Jesus couldn't fill to standing room only. People raised the roof, literally, to get to him. They climbed trees and crawled through a mob just to take a glance, just to touch the hem of his robe, Yeah, at first, the people flocked to Jesus. But now, as Pastor John started to take us in that direction last week, but now, the tide is beginning to turn. The Good Shepherd, Jesus, is starting to lose his audience. The herd is getting restless. The crowds are actually starting to thin out. Even the bulk of the groupies, those who would consider themselves disciples of Jesus, have drifted away. Why? Well, Jesus' teaching has suddenly got too challenging The bread of life that he's offering has become hard to swallow. His miracles still impress, sure. But some of those stories, you know those parables he's telling, they're just plain outrageous. Samaritans as good neighbors? Righteous tenants losing their lease on their promised vineyard? The last in line getting paid the same as the first? It's just too much. And so Jesus, once the focus of widespread acclaim, now is starting to face growing criticism and suspicion. The basis of his authority comes into question. His power to heal falls under suspicion of being demonic. And those who were once mortal enemies with each other are actually starting to become allies in the effort to bring Jesus down. And it's here, at this crossroads, it's here at this pivotal moment that Jesus turns to his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi and asks them a question. And that's the scripture you have opened before you, Matthew 16. And as we're about to read it, I want to be clear about something. It's not just something that we're going to read, because here at this crossroads, here at this pivot point, the author of the story, the Word made flesh, speaks from beyond the page, looks not just at his disciples back then, but looks at us and asks us the same question. Let us read from Matthew 16 together. Starting in verse 13, it reads, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. um, Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and say things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, then be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole, yet forfeit their soul?" Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who do you say that I am? It's the question everyone has been asking since Jesus first arrived on the scene. It's the question that will continue to overshadow the rest of the story going forward from Calvary to the tomb to Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The question that Jesus asks here is the pivot point. It's the question from which everything else follows. Who do you say that I am? Here are some of the the answers I've heard I've read or I've even seen in my lifetime. Who do you say that I am? Some would say he is my, my personal Lord and Savior. Some would say Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate. Others have said he's my life, my everything. Some have said he's my buddy, he's my brother, he's my friend, he's my rock, he's my comforter, he's my example, he's my teacher. He's my coach. He's my co-pilot. The list goes on. Maybe there are other answers that come to your mind. And the thing is, at some point or another, we've probably been told who Jesus is. Maybe you heard it from pastors like me, teachers, or parents, or, or friends, or maybe even a complete stranger. Maybe you read about it in a book, or a magazine, or a Bible study, or even on a bumper sticker. Maybe you saw it on Facebook. Maybe you read it on a blog post or heard it in a song. There are all kinds of answers to this question out there. Some of them are helpful. Many are not. Other answers are just plain ridiculous. And a few are hurtful and destructive. Nonetheless, the question remains as Jesus turns to us. As Jesus turns to us. To you, And asks, who do you say that I am? No one else can answer that question for you. No one else can answer that question for you. I can't answer that question for you. Oh, believe me, I've tried to tell you the answer. Pastor John has tried to tell you the answer, to preach it to you, to teach it to you, or more significantly, to show you the answer in how we seek to live our lives. But here's the first insight we need to have from this encounter with Christ. Is this is a question each of us must answer for ourselves. The very first insight is the question Jesus asks here is a question each of us must answer for ourselves. Jesus wants to hear from you. From you. And Jesus isn't looking for you to parrot back what you've read or what you've heard or even what you've seen. Notice here how he pushes the disciples to move on what they're hearing around them. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He's pushing them to what they're not just hearing out there, seeing out there, but what they're hearing, what they're seeing and experiencing for themselves. But who do you say that I am? And again, when we encounter Jesus, I don't remember the first time you encountered Christ. When we encounter Jesus, it's the question we ask ourselves, who is this? Who is this? And if we're honest, it's a question we hope He will answer for us. But somewhere along the way, whether you grew up in the faith in a Christian home or whether you've come late to the party, somewhere along the way, Jesus turns and asks us to answer Him. To answer to Him. This is a question, the question. Jesus wants to hear the answer. He wants to see it from you. Do you know me? Do you know me? Are you with me? Who do you say that I am? The first insight is realizing this is a question we have to answer for ourselves. The second insight is understanding that everything else rides on this question. Everything else rides on this question. Our answer to this question takes us somewhere. Think for a moment, just a moment. Think about the weight and significance of this question. The answer to this question has reset the calendar, the timeline of our lives, right? We speak of B.C., before Christ, and we speak of A.D., and that means after the year of our Lord. This, the answer to this question has literally reset the calendar, the timeline of our lives. The answer to this question, if you think about it, has shifted the whole conversation of history. Empires have fallen. Crusades have started. Wars have begun. Nations have been transformed. Hospitals established. Universities founded. Laws changed, emancipation won, civil wrongs righted, injustices struck down, all because of this question. Business as usual, the status quo, the way society has always seen it and done it, has been and continues to be challenged and changed by this question. That's the macro the weight and significance of this question. That's the macro, but it also comes to us at a micro level, a personal level. Because what Jesus asks here not only calls into question everything about our world, what Jesus asks here calls into question our very lives. How and why we live day to day. It calls into question how we define ourselves. Where in fact our sense of identity comes from. This question calls out how we understand our purpose. What or who are we living for? Jesus calls into question here how we perceive our future. Where are we going? What's the summation? What's the finale of our lives going to be? Everything, everything else is clarified, it's shaped, it's defined, it's prioritized by our answer to this question. And if everything else doesn't shift, if our priorities don't revolve and remain grounded in the answer to this question, then everything in our lives is out of order. Everything in our lives is out of order because what Jesus asks of us is more than a gracious invitation and an opportunity. It is that. It is a gracious invitation and opportunity, but it is more. It is a wake-up call. It is a grave warning. You heard it. Jesus makes it clear, depending on our answer, on the choice we make, we will either save or lose our life. You will either gain or you will forfeit your soul. This, therefore, isn't a question we can ignore or delay in answering. The significance of this question rests in its power to redeem our past to redeem our past, to reset our present, and even resurrect our future. With the right answer to this question, the fruitfulness and endurance of everything else follows. Our work, our play, our relationships with our family, our friends, our communities, our relationship even with ourselves flows from the correct answer to this question. Jesus turns to us Jesus turns to you and asks, Who do you say that I am? The first insight is to realize each of us must answer this question for ourselves. The second insight is to realize this question affects everything else. And the third insight comes from realizing that when Jesus asks us, we ought not to answer too quickly. We ought not to answer too glibly either. Take care, take caution. Because despite what we might think, despite what we have been taught, the answer isn't obvious or easy. Many people couldn't figure it out, right? Even Peter needed help getting there. Did you catch that? Do you remember this in the story? Even Peter needed help getting there. Jesus is clear in his first response to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This is a question we all have to answer for ourselves. This is a question that changes everything else, affects everything else. But here's the third insight. While this is a question we have to answer for ourselves, this isn't a question we can answer on our own. This isn't a question we can answer on our own. The answer is given to us. We can't get there by ourselves. The question and the answer reflect the reality of everything else in our lives. It all comes, all of it, by the grace of God. In other words, it's not about how smart you are. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how much effort you put into it. It's not about how earnest you can be. It's not about working your way to becoming an insider and deserving special access. Jesus asks the question. Jesus gives us. Jesus tells us. Jesus shows us the answer. We just have to receive it. Submit to it. Embrace it as our answer. But still, take care. Take caution. Because even then, when we have been given the answer to the question, we cannot get ahead of ourselves just running with what we think we know, with what we think we understand. By the grace of God, we know who Jesus is. But that's not the same thing as saying we know Jesus. Fully, completely, absolutely, period, end of sentence, done. And this idea, for a little sidetrack here, is a mistake we make in all of our relationships, all of our other relationships too. Whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you've got parents, whether you have friends that you've been friends with for a long time, we can be tempted in our lives to, after a while, after we've got some years on us, to think we know the other person, right? We know how they think, we know what they'll say. We know how they're going to react. We know what they'll do. We think in every situation. But as you know, even though we do this, you know this is a disrespectful and sometimes a dangerous mistake. You and I, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made by our Heavenly Father. While we may have similarities, genetic personality, stylistic or otherwise with each other. Nonetheless, our maker has uniquely and distinctly created each one of us. Some of you may look like, someone may look like you, someone may talk like you, someone may act like you, but there will never be another you. That's how brilliant, that's how beautiful our God is, right? He never just copies his work. How many of you have copied your work before? Be honest. I'm just going to copy and turn this in another time. God never just copies his work. Never. He always breaks the mold. Every creation is a rare, select, and first and only addition. And if that's true, think about it. There's absolutely and definitively no figuring out another person, no matter what appearances may tell us. I mean, another way to think, This is a big part of our struggle because of sin, right? A big part of our struggle is we can't completely figure ourselves out, right? I can't completely figure myself out. And if I can't do it, then you're not going to get any better. No, we never can truly know or fully know someone else And this is, by the way, in case this is suddenly like freaking you out, this is it. This This is a truth. That reality is what defines the great risk and the tremendous adventure of any relationship. The continual discovery of the other person and the surprises that come along the way. And this is why relationship is not for the faint of heart, right? And... And Jesus, this is true of us as humans, and we look at Jesus as a human being. He was fully human. Jesus shares and reveals a great deal about himself, but not everything. I mean, from start to finish, the disciples are always dumbfounded, right? They're always living. It doesn't ever change, does it? The disciples are always living in that space between comforted and confused, right? Comforted and confused, Because Jesus doesn't reveal everything about who he is. To take this from the other angle, we testify that Jesus isn't just fully human. We say that Jesus is also fully God. And if Jesus is fully human, not only fully human, but also fully God, how much more so is what I'm saying true? Over and over again through the scriptures, God tells us, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. So if Jesus is fully God then we can know who Jesus is, but there's no way we can completely, fully, and absolutely know Jesus. We see in part, not in full. And why I'm hitting this so hard this morning is that when we forget this, when we presume to completely know someone, another person, let alone know Jesus, when we presume, when we assume we've got them all figured out, we have a saying, don't we? Familiarity breeds The idea is we start taking the other person for granted. We begin making assumptions about that person and act on those assumptions rather than letting that person be who they are. Maybe even surprise us. Peter does this, right? That's what happens here. Peter does this. He's given the answer to the question and then he presumes to think he knows a lot. That he knows better that he knows who Jesus is, right? When Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying, Peter actually, it gets me every time, I'm, I'm always just blown away by this, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Don't talk like that. That's not who you are. I know you. Think about this. Peter, who didn't have a clue a moment ago, before a little divine enlightenment, now presumes to school Jesus on who he is. Peter was so certain he knew the answer to the question, he closed himself off from the need to keep learning from Jesus. The possibility of getting to know Jesus better. And there's a key word here, and it's real easy to miss. It says, Jesus then began to teach them, to teach them. Beloved, before we can speak about Jesus, we need to be sure we're learning from Jesus. Jesus. Before you start talking about Jesus, you need to check and make sure you're still learning from Jesus. And it's always got me in this passage. There's that moment, it's really weird, right, where Jesus, when, when Peter gets, is given the right answer, there's that weird line where all of a sudden Jesus tells them not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. And it's weird. But I think the reason that Peter and the other disciples are told not to share what they've been given is because they're not ready to share what they knew. They're not ready to share what they've been given about who Jesus is because there's still more for them to learn about Jesus. Can we be honest? I mean, I think that's our practice here. We like to tell the truth. Can we be honest that? Much harm is done in this world today by zealous disciples, sincere, well-meaning people who love Jesus but have not taken the time to be instructed by him or who have taken a little bit of knowledge and just run with it. They represent their faith and their loyalty to Christ in ways that actually contradict what he's all about. When we think we know Jesus completely, fully, absolutely, when we think we have nothing more to learn about Jesus, we can take Jesus for granted. Or worse, we can treat Jesus with contempt. We can find ourselves, like Peter, starting to tell Jesus who he is, who he ought to be, rather than letting Jesus tell us who we are, reveal to us who we can become. We can't, we can't try to force Jesus to be something more convenient for us as Peter did. The question Jesus asks us isn't one to be figured out like a theology or Bible exam. The question Jesus asks us isn't so much to be resolved as it is to be lived, lived by us. All of us have to continually grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. On this side of eternity, here and now, in a sense, there is no once and for all, finally and forever answer to Jesus' question. Until Jesus comes home, takes us home, or comes back, we are always living the question. I mean, who Jesus was when I was a child is different than who Jesus was When I was 30, when I was a kid, I was raised Catholic, as many of you know, and I was in catechism class, and we had this assignment to draw a picture or you could cut something out of who Jesus is, who's Jesus, and I came in with my picture, and my picture that I presented very, very proudly of who Jesus is was a picture of John Wayne, (laughs) and I still remember my teacher going, oh, Chris, oh, wow, okay, why do you have a picture of John Wayne, and my dad likes John Wayne. And the teacher was like, so how is John Wayne Jesus? And I said very succinctly, well, John Wayne always wins. Jesus always wins. Jesus is John Wayne. And she was like, okay, who's next? (laughs) Who Jesus was to me when I was a kid, right, as a child is different than who Jesus was when I was in my 30s. It's different even now than who Jesus is for me today. And hopefully who Jesus is for me will be different next year than who he is for me today. And and again, if you're freaking out as I'm saying this, understand it's not that Jesus has changed. I have. It's not that Jesus ever changes. Jesus doesn't change, but I do, hopefully. In continually, constantly engaging his question, living it out, I not only discover Jesus anew, I discover myself anew. The first insight is this is a question we all have to answer for ourselves. The second is the answer to this question changes everything. The third is this is a question, an answer that we have to answer for ourselves, but it can only be given to us by the grace of God. And even when it's given to us, we have to keep living into that question. It's not a question to resolve, it's a question to live into. And the final insight, the last insight is to realize this question, like the one who asks it, is a mirror. Answering and living the question helps us to see who we are, where Christ is in us, in our lives, and where we are becoming, who we are becoming in him. And that means that in some ways, our answer says as much or more about us than it does Jesus. How we answer, once again, doesn't change who Jesus is. It always changes who Jesus is for us. And like all mirrors, this question Jesus puts before us always reflects the truth. In the midst of our answer, it always reflects the truth in the midst of what we might say versus how we're actually living. I've avoided it to this point, but the standard answer to the question Jesus asked, who do you say that I am, the Bible's go-to answer, the Sunday school answer is Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Who do we say that Jesus is? He's my Lord and my Savior. Really? Really? What does this answer mean? What does it mean to say Jesus is my Lord and my Savior? What does that answer look like lived out? What does it look like to live out the answer, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior? Well, let's start with the easy part, so to speak. Let's start with, we declare Jesus is our Savior. My friends, Jesus as your Savior doesn't mean he only swoops in like Superman and rescues you when you're at death's door and about to breathe your last breath. Jesus as our Savior does not mean he just swoops in at the last minute when we're about to die. Knowing Jesus as our Savior means coming to understand and growing in that awareness that Jesus purposes to save you now. Now! The addictions that enslave us, and we all have them. Don't kid yourself. We're all struggling with addiction. Just name what yours is. The addictions that enslave us. The wounds that have crippled us, and we've all been hurt. We've all been crippled. We all carry wounds. The demons that still haunt us, and they're there. You know they're there. They haunt you and me. The damage we've done, and we've all done damage. The hurt that we've caused, and we've all hurt somebody. The anger we can't let go of. The grief that just keeps us shrouded in darkness. Jesus doesn't come to save us, to rescue, to heal, to redeem us from such things when we die. Jesus comes, as John so beautifully preached last week, to bring eternal life. And my friends, eternal life doesn't begin later. Eternal life in Christ begins now. Salvation comes to us in Christ today. Today. Do you know Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Tomorrow's Savior or today's? A Savior at the end or our Savior everlasting? Who do you say that I am? We say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We've talked about Savior, let's talk about Lord. Lord. We say, Jesus is our Lord. Do we understand what that means? What does that look like, lived out? My friends, Jesus as Lord doesn't mean Jesus only reigns when you're confronted by an obstacle. Jesus only reigns when you're facing a problem. Jesus only reigns when you've taken a hit to the gut. Jesus isn't the muscle, you know, the protection. We call in. Hey, Jesus. Jesus is in the muscle of the protection that we call in when the opposition gets too fierce, when the winds start to pick up, when the storm turns deadly. No, knowing Jesus as your Lord means coming to recognize and yielding to his intention and his insistence every day of ruling in your life, guiding, correcting, and directing your life Now. Now. Those expectations you're having, we all got expectations. What are yours? We've all got them. The decisions you're figuring out, we're making decisions constantly. What are you deciding upon today? Those commitments you're making, we all have to commit. What are you committing to? Those actions you plan to take, we aren't just sitting here, we're going to take action. What action are you planning to take? Those thoughts you're having, we all think whether we want to or not those prejudices that you're carrying, and we all have them, those judgments you're passing, and it's oh so easy, and we pass them easily, those words that you're literally speaking, they're actually coming out of your mouth. My friends, Jesus doesn't just come to reign over, to guide, correct, and direct our thoughts and our words, our plans and our actions, our priorities and our relationships when we're nearing the end of our lives when we've settled down and resigned ourselves to not being in control and therefore finally ready to let go. And that's what we do, right? Right? We all are all about, we're in charge. We decide. We plan our priorities because we're strong. We're powerful. We're in control. And then that clock just keeps on ticking. That body just keeps on growing. And it stops growing up. It starts growing out. And it starts breaking down. And all of a sudden, that's when when all of a sudden we, we decide Jesus can reign. When our body starts to hurt. When our mind starts to fail. When our breath is getting harder. And we realize we're not long for this world. And we can't take it with us. Okay, Lord, I've decided you're in control. You can reign. Come, Jesus. Take me now. Friends, Jesus reigns even when you're still fighting to give him control of your life. Jesus reigns even when you still are living in the fantasy that you control anything. Jesus reigns even even when you keep holding on even when you keep holding on to all these things, to all these things that you think are yours, that you think you've earned, that you think you deserve, that you think you can keep, that even when when you breathe your last dying breath and you've still held on to them, when you finally have passed, someone's gonna prick your fingers open and just take it from you. It's gonna be gone. Jesus still reigns. And Jesus wants to be Lord of your life. He invites you to let him direct, correct, and guide your life, not at the end. Once again, Jesus comes to bring eternal life, the life you were meant to live, the truth, the love, and the grace, you were meant not only to graciously receive, but to generously share, not when you pass from this life to the next, but today, today, do you know Jesus? Who do you say he is, your Lord? Is he really your savior? Do you think his kingdom is in the land far, far away? Or are you living in his kingdom now? Man, the question is everything. But you know, we were reading it together and there's this moment when Jesus takes it up a notch, right? He has this statement and Jesus says, you heard it, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. I don't know about you, but for most of my life, I've always heard that as like the big gulp moment. You know? Man, that's intimidating. But the reality is, what Jesus says here, coming after him, following Jesus is a privilege. Coming after him, following him is a privilege. Jesus invites us to follow him, to learn from him. He gives us, he offers us salvation, but it's not without his lordship yielding to his reign and his rule in our lives. And we need to hear that, right? It's a package deal. It's not an offer we can negotiate or split. We have been invited to have life, eternal life from Jesus, but it's on his terms. We have to follow his way or not at all. And yet you and I, we're wheeling and dealing, right? I love Jesus as my savior. Jesus says, my Lord, Mm, yeah, okay, sure. For some things, maybe later, When Jesus says this, when he says, whoever would come after me must deny himself, what I realize is the biggest obstacle to this question Jesus puts before me, this invitation, the biggest obstacle is me. Jesus says, listen to this, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Hear that, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. I don't know about you, but I'd prefer to follow from a distance. I'd prefer to follow from the comfort of my point of view rather than his. I'd rather follow Jesus as the hero of every story. I'd rather follow Jesus as the hero of every story rather than bear the cross and sacrifice for others. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Can't we just jump to the follow part? Can't I just... You might have noticed... Everyone's named Peter today. We're all wearing name tags that say, hello, my name is Peter. And this came up in the midst of preparing this message in a conversation in the church office. And I thought it was brilliant. That's why we're wearing these. Because here's the thing. We're all wearing name tags today that say, hello, my name is Peter. Because if you don't get it yet, we're all Peter. We're all Peter. We're all Peter in the sense that we're all blessed by the grace of God to receive the answer we're looking for in Jesus Christ. We're blessed by the grace of God like Peter to get the answer we're looking for in Jesus Christ, but we're also just like Peter in how quickly and easily we can be tempted to take what little we have been given, what little we know, and attempt to plan a coup to lord over Jesus versus letting him lord over his love in our lives. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Following Jesus, taking up our cross isn't about dying for the sins of the world. Hear that. Following Jesus, taking up our cross isn't about dying for the sins of the world. Jesus has already been there, done that. Following Jesus, taking up our cross is about dying to ourselves. It's about letting the cross, it's about letting Christ do his work in you. Living for Christ doesn't mean simply conforming to the Christian culture in which you live or becoming like all the Christians you know. We are each fearfully and wonderfully made. God came down in Jesus Christ for you to become who you uniquely and distinctly are in Christ. Living for Christ means answering his question of declaring by the grace of God who Jesus is and yielding to that same grace in becoming like him, like Jesus. We're all wearing name tags. Hello, my name is Peter. But if we were to add a second one, it would be, but I am becoming like Christ. Do do you get, when you read Paul and Peter and John after the Gospels who write about the significance of what happened, who Jesus is when they're answering this question. Do you notice, they never talk about what we talk about. They're never talking about, oh, Jesus is all about what happens when you die. It's all about what happens when you breathe your last breath. No, you read through what Peter and Paul and John and others write about the answer to this question and it's all about Christ in us today. Your life is hidden in Christ. Put on the full clothing of Christ Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or my favorite, we have been crucified in Christ. And it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Christ who lives in us. Living for Christ, letting Christ live in us means going where and to whom he sends us. It's allowing what needs to be changed to change in us. It's learning what we need to be taught. My friends, who we say Jesus is has everything to do with who and how we are and will be. It's a question we have to answer for ourselves. It's a question upon which everything else in the world and in our lives rides. It's a question we can only figure out by the grace of God, but it's a question that isn't so much about getting the right answer as it is living it out, witnessing, testifying to God's life, love and presence before us and all around us. It's less about our intellect and more about our heart. It's about being grounded in love more than it is being grounded in understanding. And it's the question that serves as a mirror reflecting who we are, where Christ is in us and in our lives, and who we are becoming in him. It moves us from simply knowing about Jesus. You know about Jesus. A lot of people know about Jesus. To getting to know Jesus and continuing in that journey of relationship by faith. And yes, It means dying to ourselves. And let's be honest, dying to ourselves is a death that can be painful. But it's the only one that is ultimately freeing. It's a death we must all face. But it's one in Christ that we need not be fearful of. Because it's a death from which we are always resurrected. Resurrected. And made new resurrected and made new together he's here I see him I hear him he's everywhere he's calling he's inviting he's turning and he's looking at you he's looking at me He's looking at us, and there the question is, who do you say that I am? Beloved, what say you?